Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland. Welcome to Supply Circles. I'm coming to you from the Yungamba language region. And in this podcast, uh, we ask the question, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we are implementing the challenges of the three Ds? You know them digitalization to keep up with your peers and your industries, decarbonisation to meet your legal requirements and targets by 2050 and in some states 2045, and ongoing disruptions which come in many shapes, not only global pandemics but also industry disruptions, product disruptions, logistic interruptions and challenges, global inflation, oh and so many more. Each fortnight I delve into different sections of the end-to-end supply chain, I chat with fascinating and interesting people and we try to have a bit of fun along the way. Today, I want to get back to basics. I want to address our fundamental thesis of building resilient and sustainable supply chains. And to help me unpack these issues, my guest today is Adam Blake, the Joint Chief Executive of Blundstone Boots, a man who has been on the inside of the issue for decades, first as an advocate and educator in a business approach called Business by Design, and now as Joint Chief Executive of one of Australia's truly global brands. I'm keen to get his insights and to hear what he has to what he has learned from the front lines over the last few years. And I'm keen to hear what he thinks is ahead. I'm keen to find out how we build resilient and sustainable supply chains. So hello, Adam. Welcome to the show. Good morning, James. Great to be here. Let's start at the obvious. You are Joint CEO of Blundstone. What is Blundstone? Uh, Blundstone is a 153-year-old family-owned footwear company uh, that is uh, headquartered and always has been in Tasmania. Um, It was started with a very simple mission by uh, John Blundstone and Sons, which was to make things that people need and want on this far-flung colony of Tasmania. And uh, we like to think we continue with a pretty practical approach to that. We've become from our small beginnings, we're um, now very much a global brand, selling in over 70 markets around the world. Last year, we sold over 3 million pairs of boots. Um, we have a operational and global supply chain uh, network that is um, around the world. Probably sell a, have a SKU, a SKU line or a product line of around 250 uh, plus styles every year going to market. Um, and yes, we're, we're really proud that we're um, able to manage this business from beautiful Tasmania. It's a story we must find out because this is fantastic. Are they just work boots? Are they, because I think of, of Blunstein's as, as the boots I wear when I'm uh, at my brother-in-law's farm. They are magnificent boots, comfortable as all get out. Uh, and strong and resilient, and I don't buy many because they're so good. Uh, are there any work boots or are there other, other parts to the business? Yeah, look, um, we're more than just work boots these days. Um, and the, as a matter of fact, uh, if we look at our sales globally, something like 65 to 70% of our sales globally are in what we call lifestyle. We get a bit scared of the word fashion. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're still in Australia. We're still very much a work and safety brand or an industrial brand. 
but overseas, you'll find our brand identity is much more known as a uh, an, a lifestyle, leisure, fashion brand. Uh, so that's been a really big change for us, and it's obviously created a lot of um, change in how how we've had to understand to lead our long-term business strategy and who our consumers are and what sort of products we need to make. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack <laughs> there. I'm, I'm going yeah. to be disappointed we have only three quarters an hour or so. I've got to start uh, back at you, though. You're the, the joint CEO or the co-CEO. That's an unusual arrangement. How, does it work? And how did it come about? Just talk about that for a while, if you would. Yeah, I, look, I think it... It's unusual, but it's not um, completely uncommon anymore. Um, a very famous Australian company called Atlassian has two CEOs. Um, so, so, does, so did SAP, by the way. So, you know, certainly yeah. in, that, in that sector, they seem to get by on two CEOs. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. No, that's fine. Um, I think I think for Blundstone, um, you've got to remember, as a family-owned business that's multi-generational and lasting hundreds of years. Um, safe hands is pretty important. Um, and we have a lot of um, trust in our people and we like to develop our people and recruit from inside if we can. So that's one of the fundamental tenets of the business. Um, so myself and my co-CEO, Daryl, um, we were both inside the business and got appointed um, together. Uh, it was also just as COVID was hitting, and I think the owners and the board, our previous CEO, who is now the chair of the board, uh, probably saw that it was a, it would be a very tumultuous time to try and bring someone in from the outside. And I would like to think as well that uh, Daryl and I, we both have very different um, experience, career experiences and knowledge sets. Um, and I think they saw that uh, as the business is getting much bigger and more complex and more global, that having a very complementary set of skills put together um, was probably a, a, a mark for success for where we're at as a business. doesn't mean it'll be our model forever, um, but at the moment it's working and the board very much consciously chose to go that way. When I did my uh, my training in organizational behavior and structure and, uh, and and with 10 years or more of uh, consulting um it is you know it used to be an anathema to have two leaders you can't have two leaders you can only have one yeah. and the other thing you never do is you create uh, you may move your ceo up to chair because they can't focus on directorship yeah. they focus on management that's right but it sounds like you guys make this work yeah we're breaking all the rules jabs um Yes, we're, we're, we're making it work and I'm really proud of how that's happened. It was a long transition. So I joined the company originally in 2015 as the global head of brand design consumer engagement. Uh, Daryl uh, has actually worked for Blundstone all his life and came from working on, in the factory in the operational side of the business through. Uh, so then a few years ago, both of us were moved into being co chief operating officers and that was preparation for the runway to co-CEOs. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think uh, everything is, again, as I say, in a, fan, in a privately owned business, um, 
succession is always a topic and I think you're always planning for how to do it most smoothly. Uh, we have a great, a really high level of engagement in our business with our staff. We have a lot of people who've worked here a long time. So we um, we really work hard to take everybody along with the changes in the business. Um, but yeah, we, we have to work hard on two things. One is uh, leave your ego at the door mm-hmm. when you walk in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is not to allow there being two, two CEOs. We try to act as one CEO, not to allow that to get in the way or slow things down or create duplication for our team and complexity. That's, that's our responsibility, make it work. Yeah, without wanting to be trite, the other, other bits that uh, are truisms are you can't build a global brand from Tasmania. <laughs> um, uh, and... <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you you can't survive 150 years. Very few right. businesses survive 150 years. Yeah. Maybe by having that different outside, you know, by breaking all the rules is what made a Tasmanian business successful for 150 years. Is that part of the DNA? Do you think? I think um, I think there's a spirit in Tasmania that is uh, we can do it. We'll do it the way we choose to do it. We're yeah. You know, it's been Tasmania's been so remote. Um, for so long like it's starting to build its own brand now which is terrific but for a long time most of the world wouldn't have a clue where Tasmania was it's part of Australia yeah. isn't it <laughs> yeah correct it's been left off the map a few times somehow it's Jones. part of Australia I'm not sure yeah <laughs> yeah but I think that remoteness you know I have a, th- a theory that that remoteness it's it sort of gives a space not to be pulled by global trends and normal practices and to make decisions about how you want to do things. And our boots are a great example. Uh, you know, Blundstone, our actual products are the child of Tasmania. They were made for Tasmania. That's why we use crazy thick leather. That's why the soles have got industrial level grip and strength and last for years and years and years and years. They were made for the conditions of Tasmania. So we just made boots how we thought we should make boots. We've made a business the way we think and uh, we should run a business. Um, and we've also decided that we can do that from Tasmania. We're probably the most, uh, go- the biggest global footprint of a company in Tasmania, I would say. I would think so, surely. Um, yeah. And I think we'll talk about it later, but I think it puts enormous emphasis on our ability to partner with a lot of other partners on both supply and distribution side around the world. You know, the truth is we're a long way from everything. So we've got to really have trusted partners uh, everywhere. Yeah, question with that notice. When I was looking at the Cascade um, brewery operations a few years ago, they were limited in how much beer they could sell into the mainland of Australia because they couldn't get it to the mainland of Australia. There's only so many, mm. so many ships. Do you face these kind of, you know, extraordinary challenges by being based in Australia or do you find a way around them to, to achieve your targets? That's a bad question, but the fundamental is how much more difficult is it in Australia? That's right. In Tasmania than Australia. <laughs> how much uh, more difficult well, in Tasmania than being on mainland Australia? Yeah, yeah I got there eventually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Uh, it was difficult um, and that's what led us to take uh, we still manufacture all of our industrial gumboots here in Tasmania. Um, so below me right now is a factory um, running. All of our all of our leather products are made with 
manufacturing partners around the world. And our supply chain comes from suppliers all around the world. Um, so um, I think 2007 was when we went, officially took leather offshore. Um, it was a combination of tariff changes um, in Australia, um, skill base uh -huh. disappearing mm -hmm. for traditional industry like footwear making and local supply chains not being able to provide enough competitively for us to grow to scale. So we, we, we literally wouldn't be here today unless we'd made that move. Right. It, we, we would have disappeared off the phone. Yeah, it's a brave decision though to say, you know, let's, let's, let's take it to the world. Let's take it to the world. Before we yeah. uh, move on to the supply chain hmm. uh, challenges and operation, Back back to you. Uh, what's what's on your desk? What's what as 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 a joint CEO? What are the challenges mm. facing you at the moment? Probably like everyone, cybersecurity is a big a big thing. Uh, we uh, yeah we have a very uh, active and fast growing program that is constantly dealing with cybersecurity now. Um, obviously, managing inflationary factors has been pretty tricky through the last, particularly through the last 12 months, 18 months. Um, how do you manage to stay competitive, not um, in, in a marketplace, but also not um, where fast growing costs? Um, that's been really, really tricky. That's a very fine balance. Um, we're doing a lot of work to try and we're a very small, we're a very, uh, a small um, corporate group really that runs a very large global footprint so um, as i said there's a lot of partners but we have to understand how to drive efficiency and productivity constantly in our business if we don't want to become too big so that's a, a very current piece of work just we couldn't during covid you're just thinking about surviving now we can sit back and think uh, about efficiency and productivity that'll under under fuel the next stage of growth. Brand growth globally, we're opening up more countries. How do we position the brand right? Um, and a really, probably the toughest one that's referencing supply chains, it's on our desk constantly is, um, we're a self-funded business. So trying to manage the supply side and the timelines required and the planning required on the supply side with the dynamics of fast moving demand side markets, uh, it's really hard. It's really hard. You know, when you've got to be placing orders six months out for materials and you've got markets going up and down like yo-yos, um, it, it, we spend a lot of time looking at how our forecasts and uh, the inventory of raw materials and all sorts of things. It's, it's just a constant piece of work since COVID started, I think. Yeah, I, I know very little about the apparel industry, uh, but I I have read Two Dogs by Philip Knight, the guy who started oh, yeah. Nike, and I uh, on the weekend, just by coincidence, I was reading uh, the uh, the biography of the Rip Curl brand. Uh, Rip Curl hmm. uh, started on the beaches of Lawn at the top, same time as I was on the beaches of Cronulla, so I felt an affinity <laughs> there. And when they described their disgraceful past, I, it resonated. But both of those books spoke of something that you and I've addressed over the years, which is growing to death. This concept of the more I sell, the more pressure there is on my uh, cash flow, <laughs> which mm -hmm. means that, uh, you know, eventually I just run out of cash flow despite having a lot of orders. And, and uh, Phil Knight talks about that was an issue for 20 
25 years and all that. Every every month he's trying to figure out how he's going to pay his keep his suppliers happy whilst trying to get money in from from sales. Is that an issue for you? I'm sure it must be if, if, around the world. Well, it is, and particularly when you yeah when you're self funding your business too. Uh, the cash. Yeah, well, that was Nike's problem, of course, because until they went uh, public, they yeah. just didn't have any, yeah. anywhere near enough cash. Yeah, yeah. We're, and, you know, we're um, studiously proud of the fact that we managed to be a 100% private company. But, um, yes, it just means the holy trinity of your sales forecast, your cash position and your inventory are something we have to constantly be on top of. We just can't afford for one of the for that to run out of alignment too too much, um, and we're obviously one of the challenges for Blundstone now too is that we have we sell as I said we're probably we are selling something like seventy percent of our products that are classed as a seasonal autumn winter boot so. Most of our distributed markets um, and our leisure or lifestyle markets are in the Northern Hemisphere and it's very seasonal. So we've now got 70% of our volume coming, uh, being demanded in a very short window. So it's a very, very lumpy cash flow then. I mean, that's, man. It's lumpy cash flow and it's a lumpy supply supply side so we've got to work really hard with our partners on both sides to try and do our best to smooth where we can that's it's not possible um, at this point we're still very much seasonally based on the lifestyle thankfully work and safety is an all-year-round element so that part of our business is a a nice constant all year round in australia new zealand then we're starting to sell more in canada us israel in terms of work and safety but so that's good it's good to have that balance between the two different categories because it's it's really hard for for us on cash and for our partners um on the supply side to work with a very spiky spiky annual program do you um, do you sell thongs or sandals because i've been to bank i've been to bangkok and seen the bangkok work boot uh in Mumbai. <laughs> Don't answer that. Don't answer that, perhaps. <laughs> no, but yes, I, it is one of the things you have to look at is can we extend across the full year? We've certainly been creating more spring sort of collection uh, products, and we've also been pushing a bit into winter because you imagine in Canada, a winter boot has a pretty serious meaning. Mm -hmm. So we've been trying to push in that direction a bit too to occupy more space and spread our season out a bit um so yeah it's just one of the complexities of us and the bigger we get with those ebbs and ebbs and flows get bigger uh, i'll pick up a bit more of that later on just saying sure. staying with um, uh, your, your your role what when we were in COVID, we were basically just trying to manage uh inventory really a large part of it was matching up the changing demand with with inventory that was hard to get uh, through to disrupted logistics. Uh, and from that uh, evolved this focus by supply chain on risk management. You know, the supply chain was where your risks were. Identify the risk points and make sure I manage it. Sort of led towards uh, just in case rather than just in time and those other mm. things. But the 
the conversations I'm having and the stuff I'm reading around the world is that now supply chain managers are back focusing on efficiency. It's back about cost control because mm. cost has just all of a sudden jumped to the forefront. You know, it's got a bit to do with uh, a war in Ukraine. It's got a bit to do with, with mm -hmm. fuel prices, but also inflationary measures all around the world. Mm. Is it is that, is that also lumpy around the world or, or is it just a pressure across the whole business? Um, it's a pretty consistent pressure at the moment. Um, we have pockets. So during COVID, it was quite handy to be so globally distributed because on both supply and distribution, uh, if you remember when COVID hit, it, it first of all smashed through Italy, Spain and France. And yeah. they're big markets yeah. for us. Yeah. But we had other markets. They, they, hit still. In, they hit in winter too, didn't they? Yeah. So that was your that was yeah. your big period. Yeah. That's right. So that that it affected there, but we're still selling strong in some other places. Mm. And then mm. on the supply side, you know, by good management and good luck, uh, we got through fairly undisrupted mm. on the supply side. Um, the only the big disruption was that. Um, that was at our footwear manufacturers, but the big disruptions happened in the supply chain, the tier two and three behind them mm, um, mm. in terms of getting materials. So it became, um, you know, a really hard thing to manage. And, of course, the dip for COVID, uh, we, were, we were lucky in Australia. We were able to keep operating and shifting our work boots because they were seen as PPE mm -hmm. so that we have uh -huh. a consistency and a base still going. Um, and our factories overseas were able to keep going. So we could supply. The dip from COVID, which was sort of around March 2020, and there's those big spikes that go down March, April, mm -hmm. and by May, it's on the way back up. Mm. And then it goes miles ahead of where it was before. So, you know, one of the good things, one of the things I'm, you know, really pleased that... Um, that we did, and we did it because it's the right thing to do, is we didn't walk out on any commitments in the supply chain or any partnerships. Oh, well done. We just said we can get through, mm -hmm. right? We'll, we'll, we'll bankroll our way. We'll, we'll get through this together. Mm -hmm. And boy, did that pay off about two months later when everyone was screaming for products and had people had walked out on factories yeah. and they'd lost yeah. their spot. Mm -hmm. But the, the point, when they walk out on the factory, that, that's 2,000 people who don't have a job to go to anymore yeah. so we're very conscious of the people who work for us and with us on our brand and and our and our partnerships because that's those same partnerships then went into hyper mode and enabled us to have two of the biggest years we've ever had during COVID. is that right yeah i mean yeah. it's all about relationship supply chain isn't it and sometimes you to go down multiple layers you just can't just deal with the ones you talk to yeah, you've got to talk to your supplier, mm. supplier, supplier, but also talk to your yeah. end consumer as well. Tough times. Yeah. What did you personally learn from all of that? Did you learn anything about yourself? Uh, yeah, well, it was really good to have two CEOs during COVID, let me tell you. To, 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 to share have. the pain. <laughs> to, 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 yeah, because it was like managing in the dark. You mm. really didn't know what was coming mm. or where you were going. So we certainly forged our joint CEO relationship um, well, it was really going to break it or make it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think the other thing is um, I suppose you learn this guy isn't completely falling in. Now, I know some businesses didn't last, so I'm saying that with some 
circumspection. But for us, it's you know it's very easy to get sucked into the worst. And actually, when we sat back and we learned very quickly, just got to sit back and look at what's actually happening on the ground. Um, because you've got this world of noise around you from media and you, your own staff are worried sick mm. about what's going to happen. So, you know, one of the first things we did, thanks to our owners who told us to do this, was as soon as COVID hit, the first thing they said is you're going to tell everyone no one's losing a job at least for a year. Yeah. yeah. First thing we did, and that just calmed down the place a little bit and made people feel Okay, outside of work, it's mayhem, but I know I've got a job. And as I said, you know, we learnt the, that the strength of partnerships was actually, it probably showed us and taught us, it amplified that our whole business model is built on partnerships. Because when COVID hit, we've got partners on the distribution side who are investing a lot in our brand and are buying a lot of stock from us. Um, we've got suppliers investing a lot in making our product, in machinery, people, raw materials. Um, we just realised that we have to work this as a as a partnership model. Our, our actual fundamental business is a partnership model. That's um, that's <laughs> to everyone listening. Listen to that. That's the key, isn't it? Um, your business is a is a human endeavor. It's a bunch of people working together, using tools, using resources, uh, using yeah. using AI. But it comes back to people, uh, and you need partnerships yeah. for that. Great message. Yeah. During COVID, we saw an explosion of online business. People buying things at home. They were stuck at home, so mm. they started buying. Um, it's counterintuitive for a thong wearing person like me to think of buying shoes while you're stuck at home. But uh, do you have an online business, and how did that go? Uh, yes, we do. Um, so I can only really, um, well, I can talk about all of our partners around the world and their online business, but let's just take the markets that we run that directly. So Australia, New Zealand and USA, which are the three markets we run um, ourselves. Uh -huh. uh, in the USA, our online, our web store generates um, about 30% of our sales in the USA. Just to give you a perspective of the scale of online buying in the USA, in 2022 at the Black Friday sale, which ran for us runs for five days because we give an extra day for some of our members, we sold 45,000 pairs of boots in five days. Wow. You can imagine what the where, how the warehouse and customer service, what that means for them. It's a nightmare, but it's terrific on the sales side. <laughs> yeah. it, just, it shows you the power of brand and engagement with consumer um, once you've got that sort of audience sitting. Now, we are still a fledgling brand in the USA, mm -hmm. and that's what we can do online. So for us, it's, um, it's obviously in Australia, we're starting to grow a lot more online, but we only sell the leisure or lifestyle products online here because we've got such long relationships with our work and safety retail customers and resellers that we have made a conscious decision not to sell over the top of them. Um, and that's because in Australia, we are still 90% a wholesale business. So we have to remember where our bread is buttered and be careful when you're doing online. But 
it's incredibly important um, as you guessed in your fit is an issue returns are an issue exchange and refund all of those things it comes with a big resourcing ticket to do it well and at scale and you have to spend handsomely on getting eyeballs to your site mm. Mm-hmm. and spend handsomely and constantly changing your website to improve the consumer experience and get them to convert and buy as smoothly as possible. But part of the customer experience is what you were saying before. Part of it is that last mile delivery. You've, you've got to have good mm-hmm. distribution structures in place uh, and they've got to be timely. If I buy them now, I don't want to wait three weeks to get them. Uh, yeah. And the other one, I'm thinking of America here as well, and the other one is returns. Mm. Uh, if, if I get yeah. them, I don't like them, I won't want them back to you straight away. So you've got to have this reverse uh, supply chain in yeah. place. Yeah. I, I know that many companies have struggled with this. Has it been a challenge for, for you guys? It's a massive It's a massive struggle. I think you just have to accept it's part of footwear online. I mean, just think of... If you go into a shoe shop, how, you know, like how much you sit down and try shoes on to get the right fit um, online. You know, our best customer is someone who already knows their size in Blunston because they're away. Um, in US, there's an average of about 30% return rate in footwear. Now, the best thing we can do is accept that. Boy, accept that. that's expensive. Accept, oh, yeah, it's expensive because you're paying for it twice mm, now. Mm. But accept it, build it into your cost structure, but also build um, build a really smooth process that means you don't lose that person when they send their boots back. So we're really working hard at the moment on not just refund, but how do we allow for exchange? Yeah. How do we set up? We've built a whole lot of assets around finding the right fit for you with our boots. Um, how to how to make sure you get because the last thing you want is someone to have a bad experience the first time they slip a boot on. So if they do, let's go into overtime, try and hang on to that consumer and not lose them. But it's a real issue. It's it's a real issue in I think clothing might be similar but not quite as sensitive. But footwear is absolutely a fit thing, and uh, yeah, I think it's just part of our business. The fundamental point though is that if when you're buying online, you're buying on this promise idea of you will get to me the product mm. that I'm that I what that I want, and it may take three or four goes because I'm dumb, but I still need you to solve the problem for me, as you might do if mm. I was in store. The, the 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 promise of online purchasing is implicit. Do you agree? It's your brand promise. You know, back to the brand and design. Um, that is your brand promise. We say we've got some of the most comfortable boots, most durable boots and highest quality boots in the world. Um, when people get that, you're really hoping that that promise translates as they open the box and put that boot on for the first time. Um, but inevitably, there's going to be um, issues with it. So you've just got to focus on making the experience as smooth as possible. Uh, the other ways you can try and set up, you know, there's much more of this uh, since COVID, you, we're seeing people going back, wanting to go back to shops. So there's this right? om, okay. omni-channel thinking mm-hmm. starting, which mm-hmm. is how to make it really smooth between a shop and online, make sure that experience of the brand is consistent, mm-hmm. make sure they can work together. There's even models where a brand, a supplier brand like us and our retail customers can work together to share the 
share the revenue of sales and all sorts of things. So you can have returns happening at a shop where someone can sit down with them and make sure they fit them with the right pair, yeah, right. you know, rather than this online thing and waiting weeks and looking at multiple so, yeah. ways to deliver the promise. I, 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 yeah. Yeah. Make, yeah. Absolutely. Makes sense. Uh, we should move on. But before we do, you said, I think, 35,000 sales in, in five days. Um, 45. 45. Yeah. yeah. And if yeah. Black Friday is at the beginning of of Northern Winter. End, end of November, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's just as it going into the heavy part. So it cleans out your, your warehouse at the time that you, uh, you're <laughs> going into your, your major sales. What? No, that's all what? right. They've that... got a stock model, stock model built for that. Is that right? Uh, actually, the harder part is what it does at the warehouse for. Um, because if you're right, you've got a warehouse that's generally for the rest of the year built around, it's built around single picks for website throughout the year because we do 30% of our business. But 30% of that business that we do online, you know, uh, close to 30% of that is done in the space of about two weeks. So it's it's a it's very hard having a warehouse that's built around wholesale and one that's trying to run with single picks at 45,000 in five days you know like yeah. that's <laughs> it's crazy yeah, yeah your warehouse managers just must but we're doing it yeah we're, yeah, we're doing it. Uh, yeah black friday must have different meanings for different people and warehouse yeah man- <laughs> warehouse managers aren't, aren't a big fan of it i'm sure <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 it's it's pretty um tense time to go to the warehouse yeah. Let tell yeah. let's go to a break uh, before we do uh did i see uh, that Blundstone sponsored for a little while a V8 supercar was it Cam? Yeah. It seemed like a natural fit for me, you know. Assuming that V8s are those sort of working man's kind of sport, uh, and you've got working boots, safety boots. Um, was it worthwhile? What's it like? No, I you know just just, yeah. just a, a vague question about sponsorship. Yeah. I guess no. We we felt it was it was a natural fit. We've um. We have moved on from that sponsorship, um, and we actually we actually have uh, what's called the Blundstone Arena down here in um, Hobart, which oh, is a cricket and yeah. football stadium that we sponsor. Um, and we've actually, uh, I'll try and cut it really short, but as a family business, we quite like we have an ethos of giving forward, so we invest in. Uh, causes and sponsorship often around the next generation. So we actually sponsor a young uh, racing driver from Tasmania who is racing in Europe now with Mercedes, uh, Alex Peroni. And um, so we decided we wanted to support support our our sort of longevity in racing, but focus in on a really talented young kid and see if we could really turn the dial for him. I will assume then that uh, when I wear my Blundstones in my Mercedes, it's not as uh, <laughs> as sacrilegious as it sounds like. Not at all, James. Our tagline is "Everywhere life takes me," and that's what you can wear Blundstones everywhere. I like it. All right, let's have a break. When we come back, we'll talk some more about uh, business by design. If that's okay, I'm talking uh, to Adam Blake from Blundstone, and this is a good chat. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. 
That's B-I-G at aigroup.com.au. Adam, you and I first met each other uh, years ago uh, when uh, you were involved in a, uh, the ideas of business by design. And if uh, my rattled old brain is still working, I think your point was that you, you focus your whole business around the consumer. Uh, the consumer is the, the point of focus. Um, and uh, since then, there's been a lot of discussion about how you design businesses. You're an expert in this. One of the things that comes up a lot is this idea of many businesses are just one up, one down. They, you know, I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking to supply the person who's directly in front of me and I'm looking to manage the supplier who's directly behind me. But organisations don't do that. Organisations mm. exist to fulfil the need of the end consumer. So you just talk to me a little bit about what you think um, you know, business by design is and, and how do you mm. focus on the end consumer? It's a it's it's a big turnaround for a lot of businesses. Um, as you said, I've referenced the, when I worked, you know, with the program through the government working with businesses, which is how I got to meet Blundstone through our business by design or design integration program. Um, most businesses are set up in a very, um, as you say, exactly as you said, one up, one down, or a very stage gate way of operating. Um, uh, we make things, someone goes out and sells them, that's that, you know. Uh, puts a lot of pressure on sales and it basically means you've got a tail, um, you know, wagging the dog situation often. Um, remember, we were a manufacturer for 138 of those 153 years. So it's been a big turnaround, let me tell you, yeah. to become a global brand that's become brand and consumer-led. Um, for us... Uh, when Blundstone first engaged myself and some of our other team um, to work with them around building design and brand capability, I think it's interesting to think about why they did that, why they were interested um, at the time. They wanted to understand how they could find insights that would help them innovate and find their own space in the market. And um, at that sort of blue ocean idea, mm -hmm. um, if you just, you know, we can make boots as good as anyone else in the world, but you can get stuck in a feature tweaking race, as I call it. Oh, they've done this. We can do that. They've done that. Yeah. You've actually got to find your own space. Um, and so in a way, it was about where do we get those insights to tell us what to do in innovation and product design? Um, and that was the beginning. And the other one was we had a lot of noise as we started to open up around the world. Our retail and distribution partners said, you, you guys have got fantastic product, beautiful, beautiful boots, but we actually need something more than the boots to sell. Like we need a thing called brand, mm, you know, mm. and you're this 150-odd-year-old business and you're giving us nothing. You're just giving us brown and black boot and telling us to go and sell it. So we realised that we were, um, we were lacking in... Yeah, I often call brand like the centre pole in a in a, um, a circus tent. Um, the tent was just being held up by the products, and the products have to fight so hard if there's no brand around them. And that brand story for us becomes what starts to draw consumers in as well. And then we got close. So because our business model is built around. As I said, essentially, we're a, um, a brand owner in the middle of, middle of a very big value chain. 
So people could ask the question, why do we have to know the consumer? Why, why someone else can do that? Um, but the point is, we have to know the consumer to design the products they want and need, which remember is how we started in 1870. Um, we also have to know the consumer, so we're sending the right messages as the brand to bring people to us. So we, we decided that um, we had to rethink the business from a manufacturing mindset to say, actually the asset, the business and the asset we're managing is a global brand. So I often say it's the golden egg is our brand, is the golden egg that's being passed from generation to generation. So if that's our greatest asset, we have to know consumers intrinsically as well as anyone else in that value chain because we're responsible for designing products they want and will pay good value for and we're responsible for sending the right messages to the world to engage consumers. So that was a really big shift for us as a business. Are you saying it's more than just uh, when um, <clears throat> when someone was buying boots in um in Lyon in France, they yes. were not buying uh, Blundstone, a bloody good boot. They were buying something a lot more than that. Yes, I think now now they're buying into the whole story. They're, they're now they're understanding where this, where the original Chelsea boot, we've been around for 153 years, we make the toughest boots. So they're now buying into a story and engaging with that brand story. And so the more the consumer engages with it, you become part of their own personal brand. So we know when when I travel, this is how we came up with Every Life Takes Me. You know, I'd love to say it was a you know million dollar advertising campaign. <laughs> I'd love it to say you'd pay me in for it. Yeah. Every time I sat down, and every time everyone in this business sits down on an aeroplane or goes somewhere, someone how do you work for Blundstone? Oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you where I've been in my Blundstone. Oh, right? okay. It's, it's a real truth about our product because they last so long. People live experiences in them. So we want people to feel part of that brand that is um, Blundstone could be part of your life. Yeah. And so it sounds a bit esoteric, but it it is how we've approached trying to create what we say is we have an inclusive brand. We want the guy wearing his uh, mining boots to feel just as much part of Blundstone as a young 17-year-old female going to a music festival in um, Paris. Right? That, those two people, we want them to both feel they can be part of Blundstone. Yeah, really. So we have to make it a story about what Blundstone stands for and that, that matches what people are looking for, not a story about ourselves. Mm -hmm. The last bit of the design journey was when I joined Blundstone, um, they said, great work. You've convinced us, design a brand. We need it. Come on in, join it. And in fact, you can lead it because we don't know how to lead that. That's not sitting in our business process, Matt. Where does that happen? So what I, what I realized was this is probably my learning from the, the design integration or business by design program is that you actually have to rebuild the car before you can drive it differently. You can't just hop in and say, oh, we're, re we're driving the business differently now uh, because the business has to be built around where design and brand fit in our processes and who works on that and what team and what point are you engaging consumer insights in product development and at what point are you de designing brand 
brand campaigns and when are you releasing them? But yeah, you have to. So we really, in the last five years, we've we've we established a new business framework or a business model called global brand management. And that's allowed us to really think about where the consumer fits. And as I said before about online, digital, it's teaching us to think like a retailer. Now, remember, we've been a manufacturer and a wholesaler. Now we're like, oh, okay, we've got to think like a retailer. That's our shop, the online store. Mm, mm, mm. You know, we can't treat that like we're some wholesaler. It doesn't matter if you can't ship on a Saturday and Sunday. Yes, it does. People are buying online on Friday night. They want their boots ASAP. And it's all part of that uh, the, the brand experience. You can't yeah, separate you've really got to question yourself. So we operate a multiple. We operate as a, hopefully a best-in-class wholesaler. We're a supply partner and we're also selling direct on our online and we're engaging consumers for insight. So I think the last 10 years for Blondstone has been stratos- stratospheric change from a company that thought of itself as a pretty parochial Australian men's work brand to a global brand that's now selling more in the lifestyle and fashion segments and probably has more women than men buying our product. It's a real example of that, uh, that you know, <laughs> that assignment you got at uni saying, yes, it's been around for 140 years and that's part of the brand story. Um, but imagine that you're starting the business today. How would you set it up differently yeah. from the way it was? Uh, you've done that. Yeah. We've we've rem and and listen, Blundstone's re. We have a saying that the only reason we're here 153 years later is we stay relevant. So unless our products and our business model stays relevant, we're gone. Like yes. it's not going to last another 150. So when we took leather manufacturing offshore, we're proud of that. Now we're proud of our partners overseas. We would not be here if we hadn't have done it. So. You have to make decisions to shift gears. And obviously, for us, the work and safety market in Australia and New Zealand is a very mature market, and we have a big slice of it, along with some other big competitors. Um, But the exponential growth is going to come from discretionary sales through fashion, and that's going to happen in markets all around the world, more than it is in little old Tasmania and Australia. So we realise that if we want to exponentially grow this thing, you've got to look overseas and you've got to look into categories or channels in the market that we haven't been in ever before. I've just come back from Europe and uh, I noticed in, in South Germany, I spent a fair bit of time in South Germany in, in Bavaria hmm. and their day-to-day understanding and acceptance of uh, the change into a, a post-carbon world is strong. Um, it's a beautiful, yeah. clean, there's electric vehicles everywhere. Uh, so can I ask you about ESG? It's a big issue mm. for supply chain and environment and social governance. It's different all around the world. How, how do you manage um, a global approach to environment and social governance when, it's, when, when there's so much variance? Yeah, look, um, that's such an such a accurate statement, James. It's... Um, it's running at different paces in different places all the time. Um, the same thing happened with sort of data privacy too. It sort of swept around different places. And, but we tend to try and, try and pin ourselves to wherever the, 
the leading edges of standards, regulation, etc. Because inevitably, a few years later, everyone's going to be catching up and running towards that. So when data privacy came in, we immediately pinned ourselves to the European uh -huh. standard. It's uh -huh. like absolutely painful, but we just realised <laughs> if we didn't, we'd only be back there one year later retrofitting. It's so honest, isn't it? Take that, do the hard bit. It's, do the hard bit. It's, it's not nice, but yeah. it is what you need to do. Might as well tackle it. Yeah. You know? ESG, it's got a couple of things for us. First of all, it's a no-brainer for us. Again, remember, multi-generational, privately-owned business. It's part of how this is, that golden egg called the brand is going to be passed on to the next generation and the next and the next. So ESG has to be done. It's also the right thing to do. So there's no, there's no fight with it. It's probably getting used to the fact that exactly to your question, we won't be totally in control of the pace in which we have to do this. The, the world yeah. will dictate yeah. that to some degree. Yeah. Now, that world is a range of players all operating on their own agendas. Consumers already starting to use their purchasing power to make decisions. Um, consumers on digital can make or break you in three seconds. Um, so you've got that aspect. We've also got some very big retail customers or partners who are really pushing us hard. So one example is REI, which is a very large outdoor chain, the biggest in America. We're, they're one of our biggest retail partners. Um, every year they come back with a self-audit and they have a series of things that they tell you you need to improve on. And they say, if you get to a certain point where you're not up to our standards, we won't take your product, full stop. No. End of discussion. Uh -huh. So that's happening. You've got, uh, then you've got legislation, regulation. You've got chemical standards changing very fast. PFAS has been one that's been on the news here, mm -hmm. but in America is sweeping very quickly across the market. That has to do with, particularly with um, products uh, that are made for with waterproof qualities and um, high durability. So that's just suddenly arrived and mm. the chemical standards coming out of California, I'll just say it has to be, you have to have it out of your products by the 1st of January 25. Hmm. So our accreditations team, which tries to keep up <laughs> with this stuff is really, um, we're having to resource that more and more because the pace is picking up. But it's still part of your brand. It's still an important part of your brand though, isn't it? This whole, yeah. you know, you don't want to yeah. end up on the front page of, you know, the Sacramento. Never, 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 ever. And, uh, and I think we have to approach it both from an opportunity side. There are certain consumers that if we want to be relevant and a high-value product, you're probably going to have to have ESG well under control and part of your brand um, mm -hmm. in the future. Um, at the moment, consumers are a bit, yep, we want ESG, but we're not prepared to pay. But that'll shift quickly. And I think for us, we've now, a year ago, we hired our first ever ESG manager, um, so we've got three streams sort of running. One is looking at our own business as usual mm -hmm. and where we've got to shift gears around our warehouses, our sales car fleet, uh, waste recycling, travel, transport, lots of things. Then you've got, remember for us, we're a partnership model, so we've got an enormous amount of partners who we've, if we want to talk about Blundstone Globally's ESG, that our environmental footprint, it involves all of them too. So we've got a whole program where we have to 
as the brand owner and supplier and distri distributor or buyer and distributor, we have to be we have to change gears and work as a value chain leader in this space with our partners um, to, to show them and help them what we expect. And then you've got the whole stream around the product itself, circularity, resale, recycling materials, end of life. What's the life cycle of your product? Thankfully, our products last forever. So um, that is actually a good tick for ESG and sustainability. So yeah, it's a growing, a growing program in our business and what it'll actually do, it'll probably drive most of our product innovation for the next however long. Yeah. It'll be it'll be the lead the lead um, input into innovation. In a recent podcast I interviewed um, two professors, Melissa and Renu from UTS, uh, an old stomping ground of yours. Uh, and they're, they're specialists in supply chain and sustainability. Uh, and they were convinced that the future is uh, uh, consumers buying based on lifestyle and, and, and their beliefs. It's going to be value-based, personal value-based yeah. decisions. And yep. the extension of that is digitalization is your friend. Uh, so just mm -hmm. to wrap up, is digitalization your friend? Uh, I would preface it by saying uh, someone said to me recently, you know, accolades to all the uh, small to medium-sized businesses that have been able to change to digitalization because you've got to keep running business as usual while you fundamentally change your business. How are you guys going? Uh, you, you said it perfectly, Charles. It's the constant struggle for a business. And whilst we've got a big global footprint, we still are quite, a, you know, we're 140 direct employees. We're still quite a small business in that way. And we choose to keep keep it tight mm -hmm. at the centre. Uh, a constant conversation we have is how much can the business carry at one time? What happens when you run? We just came out the other end of implementing a new ERP system. That's taken us about three years and was pretty much like throwing a, a bomb yeah. into the centre of the, the business. I shiver when, you're, when I hear those words because it yeah, brings back what? memories there. Yeah. And we got four different business entities we had to implement it for. So um, absolutely massive. So um, we have a very clear systems roadmap set out, but we're constantly going back to it and assessing how much can we carry at any one time, which of these products are going to pay us an efficiency and productivity dividend mm -hmm. in the long run. Yeah. So should yeah. we put them first mm -hmm. in the chain? Um, which ones do we have to do? Like cybersecurity is a non-negotiable. It has to be attended to. Um, and, yeah, the IT team is becoming a bigger and bigger entity. So the mix of what internal skills do you need and external skills and, therefore, what's your budget to go with it? So, yeah, it's it, it, between that and ESG... <laughs> uh, and BAU, that's three big balls to keep in the air, trust me. And then that's what I said before, trying to keep all three of them uh, under control uh, whilst underpinning that is lumpy sales and, and difficult cash flow. Must be good. Yeah, and fast, and fast growth. You know, we've grown enormously in the last 10 years, so we've got all of that happening at the, the same time, yeah. I could keep talking for, for hours. This is just fascinating. Um, we should wrap it up there and let you get back to fast growing your business. One last question then. What's the next frontier, either for you or for the brand? Yeah, well, for me, it's uh, 
the joy of living into being a grandpa and, and uh, these beautiful little cherubs that you can hand back. <laughs> all love and all love and no responsibility. That's great. Finally got um, there, eh? Finally got there. Well done. Yeah. I think for Blondstone, you know, we're really we're really enjoying, you know, stepping up into the global brand space and we got a lot of love around the world. We've got a lot of incredible we have distributors coming to us now saying we want your brand. Um so we we um we see lots of opportunity ahead. The lumpiness is difficult, um, but there's lots of opportunity for us as a brand. We have a lot of credibility as a brand. Um, the issue for us will be managing at what pace we can do it. That's all. Yeah. Um, but we're dedicated. The owners are the proudest Tasmanians you would ever meet, mm-hmm. and headquarters will always be here. Um, so, in, in Hobart? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think for us, it's um, that's a given. Um, but we now have a whole team of people who service the brand globally and service the supply chain globally. So, yeah, I think just constantly understanding at what pace we can grow responsibly and sensibly and not kill our team. Well, if you've got people coming, you know, distributors coming to you and asking for the product, that that means the brand story is working, isn't it? It's resonating around the world. What 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 a great thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a good thing, and I can't. I could not be prouder than work for such an icon as Blundstone. What a great story! I have one pair of Blundstone boots. Do you think that's the right number? No, <laughs> no, because as you said, our boots last so darn long. We need everyone to have a big collection. Otherwise, we're waiting ten years for a repeat purchase. Yeah, I know, yeah. and that's true. But that's the perfect. Perfect product for the future. That's just not this sort of disposable throwaway right. kind of culture. So I hope that's part of your brand story. We are the epitome of slow fashion. Slow, and, slow um, fashion. Honestly, it is. We are well positioned for that sort of conscious consumption model that we're moving into. It's been fabulous talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I hope that uh, that it continues to go at, as well as it has. I think you've been managed to get through COVID as well as you have. Uh, Mm. you know, signs are good for the future. Thank you very much. Thanks, James. It's been good to see you again. Well, that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for listening and thanks for your feedback. If you do have any feedback on today's interview with Adam Blake or Ideas of the Show or just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at uh, james.scotland with one T, james.scotland at airgroup.com.au or at my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys of building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.